All right, and welcome to this week's episode of On Air with Sean McStay. This week, I am thrilled to have with me Renee Safrata. Renee is the CEO and founder at Vivo Team. Renee has worked with over 3,000 companies. She's an expert in leadership, talent activation, and predictive analytics. She's been described as a visionary, a force to be reckoned with, and an inspired mentor. So I'm thrilled to welcome you to the show, Renee. Wow, that's cool. That's a cool introduction. Thanks, Sean. You're very welcome. So for people who don't know you, tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, first of all, I'm a Canadian, which I'm very proud to be. I would also say I'm one of only a few Safratas in Canada. My father was an immigrant and he brought our name to Canada. So if you meet a Safrata, they're probably related to me. I've been a solopreneur and an entrepreneur for 35 years of my career. Currently, I'm working as a digital nomad, which you may not know, in Barbados. That's why, Sean, when you were asking me to cut the noise off, it was actually the waves on the beach coming in. So I closed the window for that. I'm a real foodie. I love chefing up a storm in the kitchen and I love trying new restaurants. And with COVID, I actually took up jump rope, which is really fun. And I'm quite addicted to it. And it just makes me laugh and smile every day, which I absolutely love. And I'm a real glass full gal. My glasses are rosy. I see life in a rosy way. That's for sure. Oh, that's fantastic. Certainly a useful skill set right now to have. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. When I start these interviews off, I kind of like to start at the beginning. So when you were growing up, was entrepreneurship, running your own business, was that something that was ever of interest to you? Or what, what was your kind of career plan when you were younger? You know, I don't think it was, but I think I was actually quite heavily influenced by my father because my father in the early 60s, I mean, this is not new to us now, but in the early 60s, my father ran a company out of our basement in our home. So he was work from home entrepreneur. He was a Czech man and he worked primarily in Europe, even though he was obviously an immigrant to Canada. So I think from that perspective, just waking up in the morning and seeing my father at the breakfast table or coming home, you know, in the middle of the day or a sick day. And my father being there was actually had quite an influence on how I structured my career as an entrepreneur and a work from home entrepreneur for 35 years. I've even seen my brothers do the same thing. So I think we were heavily influenced by that for sure. Very interesting. I've been working from home for about 15 years now and people are talking now about back to the office and I'm just like, what do you mean? The office doesn't exist for me. I don't know what this is. Exactly. I think I've learned a lot about that with COVID as well, because things that I sort of took as this is the way it goes, people are exclaiming that that is either tough for them or good for them. Just because it's just been the way I've done it, I never knew it was so unique. For example, I was thinking about this at the beginning of the week that some people were talking about how working from home, they don't have the deviation between working from home and personal time. And it made me think about that. And my husband actually asked me, he said, well, do you think that's impacted your way you've worked all your career? And I said, yeah. And it's probably taken a toll because I haven't done that well. Up early, drinking coffee, oh, I can get something done before the phones start ringing kind of thing and blur effect into the weekend. So I don't think I have done that well. (laughs) I'm learning how to do it now, but it's taken a long time. Yeah, it certainly is a challenge, I think. For me personally, it fits my style. I tend to work well in bursts, and so I'll work and then do something else and then work some more. And so being flexible helps. But I do think that it's a legitimate challenge for a lot of people, especially, you know, if they've only been doing it for a couple of years here with COVID and all the other stuff that COVID has brought around. 
looking more towards the beginning of your career, you started off in interior design. How did you get into interior design? And then how did that switch from kind of working for a company to working for yourself? Yeah, there's a lot of questions in there. But, you know, my father was an architect, again, talking about him, but he was an architect. So I love aesthetics and great space. And I think if I think back to being a really young girl in the back of my parents' car driving home from a dinner party. I was always loved that time of night because the lights were on in the houses and I could see into the interiors. So I think that really sort of drove my interest for interior design. And also my father was really helpful in kind of encouraging me to do that because I liked art, but I also knew I wanted a career. So that was interesting. I want to go back to your question. Your question was, how did you go from interior design and how did you navigate your career? What was it, Sean? Because you asked sort of a stack three-parter there. Yeah, so you got into interior design, you worked for a firm, and then you kind of started your own firm, as far as I know. Kind of walk me through that kind of process. So in my career, again, 35 years, I've only had a very few months in firms. So the firm that I worked with was actually one of my key mentors who was actually a prof in Toronto at Ryerson in the School of Interior Design. His name was Philip Moody, definitely a pivotal mentor for me in my career. He hired me right out of school and I worked for him. And one of the great things that Philip said to me was, hey, if I'm on my own, you can go out on your own. So I sort of quickly got out of doing that. I built a boutique design firm that specialized in big box retail design. After doing lots of homes and lots of retail spaces, but that's sort of where I landed. And what I recognized during that time was that I was starting to discover my passion, which was really all about teams. And for me, what I was recognizing was that I was working on some really dysfunctional teams and I was working on some really functional teams. And I was like, hmm, what is the difference between the two? Why can one team sort of find the key to collaboration and productivity, but another one sort of works blindly throughout all of their projects and never picks up that special key. Like, what is the difference? So I think that that was really what sort of tipped me away from design and architecture into the next path. And I can explain a little bit about that, actually, if you're interested, Sean, because it's kind of an interesting story about mentorship in my career. One of the things that I realized was I, as a woman in business, again, think about this in the 80s and the 90s, a very different place for women in business than it is today. And I'm really glad to see that. But what I was recognizing was that I was presenting to larger numbers of men at the strategic table. And as one of my girlfriends was having more and more boys, I was standing in front of larger groups of men and I could recognize really easily that there were a particular archetype of men that just didn't recognize the value that I was bringing to the table. And so I sat down one day and I thought, if I could actually sort of craft out what were those archetypes, who would they look like? And so I did that. I sat down and I figured out four archetypes of men that just could not understand what I was bringing to the table. Found those people in my life, built together my own sort of private board of directors ask those people if they would spend an hour a month with me and allow me to tell them my failures, my successes, and was open to them really being confrontative and telling me what they saw and what their experience of me was. And it was in that experience at about the seven-month mark with four of those people that one of them came to me and said, you know what, I think actually your passion is people and your passion is this whole idea of teams. And so whether you do that in architectural design sort of system 
or whether you do that with corporations, I don't think that's the matter. I think it's all about people and all about teams. So that's where I pivoted and went into the next part of my career. And so the next part of my career was really working with CEOs and presidents who would come together on a regular basis to talk about what was going on in their organization and how they could do better, essentially, having a peer networking group. And again, there's so many of those out here these days. And I would get calls from CEOs because I did a few things. I told the truth. I could sniff sort of conflict, like burning rubber, I guess you could say. They would call me and say, can you just come and I think I've hired the right people, but I don't think these right people are working together well. And so I would essentially use my expertise from behavioral science that I had studied with a particular mentor to put onto the table what was going on. And sometimes it got me fired, which is kind of funny. But other times people were like, yeah, you told the truth. That's exactly what's happening here. And we need to get better. So if you look at Vivo Team right now, Vivo Team is actually a combination of that experience because I was diagnosing what was happening. We do that with our Vivo Team diagnostic. We call it the Vital Statistics Report. It is a behavioral science-based people analytics where we can understand how leaders and teams are doing well or not against the six key indicators of highly functioning teams and what we call a leader behavior gap. That was me telling the truth. Now it is unbiased because we learn the truth from the survey participants that weigh into that report. And then the next part was I was helping them understand how they could change behavior. And so we offer leaders and teams really practical tools so that they can understand now that they know the problem, what can I do differently? And if I do that differently, how will it change the performance of our team? So it's evidence-based performance learning and development that we do for leaders and teams. And then the next thing that I was doing was essentially a stop action with those CEOs and their groups. And in that stop action, we do that at Vivo Team with group coaching. So we embed group coaching into our products. So we're a methodology business now to learning and development as a core for leaders and teams, but it adds the special sauce of the analytics and then that special sauce of being able to have practical tools and high touch group coaching along the way. So it's really fun and it's essentially a combination of all of the feedback and all of the things that I love that have come to the table. And by the way, I haven't done that on my own. I've had a great team of people supporting me along the way to get that pulled together. (laughs) I would imagine. I mean, that sounds certainly very complex, but it's extremely interesting to me because the word that I was thinking before, and then you actually just said it was feedback. I found in my career and certainly with different professionals I've spoken with that feedback is kind of a scary word for a lot of people. How do you go into these companies? And certainly when you're talking to the senior level people at the companies, how do you frame your feedback in a way that they're receptive to it? There's about three things I want to say about that. Number one that I want to say is, you know, we've been collecting data across teams and leaders throughout North America. We have a global footprint, so we're in other countries as well. And one of the things that we see across all of our data, all of our teams, all of our leaders, the the most difficult competency, the most difficult motivation, and the most difficult pain point for collaboration is what we call interactive feedback. We all want it, but we're all struggling with the how-to, which is what your question is. So what we do at Vivo Team when we talk about interactive feedback is we give people, again, practical tools with essentially how to start the conversation a model for feedback that includes a real guide to do this, 
This is how you start the sentence. This is how you navigate essentially the workflow or the process of a feedback conversation. And that just kickstarting just even with the first two words is really helpful for leaders and managers to try it on for size. And we also have a philosophy that we're in adult learning. So you're not going to get it right all the time. But if you give it a try and then you try to craft it a little bit more differently so you make it your own and it doesn't sound stilted, then it's really easy to do. With regards to senior teams and also senior leaders and middle manager leaders, because we work primarily with hard skill operators, they have been trained in the hard skills of their career. They may not know those power skills of which one is interactive feedback. What we find is actually they're really hungry to learn and they're interested to learn. So they're willing to sort of open up once they've seen and perhaps in their analytics that this is a pain point for them getting their teams to be productive and to engage in a high level. They're interested to like, tell me how to, what do I need to do here? So having that behavioral analytics is really helpful because it removes all of this sort of thing of, you know, I've got a team, but I've got some blue hats and green hats and yellow hats, and I've got some ENTJs and managers and leaders are just like, oh, I'm so confused. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. What do I do? How do I navigate this conversation? But by giving them, hey, actually your team is not motivated to bring feedback forward. Okay. Now how do you motivate them essentially? Does that help? Did I answer your question? Definitely. Yeah. So kind of digging a little deeper into that, When you run into people that are not receptive to that feedback that you're giving, do you find that the analytics are really helpful because it's maybe a little bit more of an objective measure that they can look at versus what they might feel is subjective as you coming in from like kind of outside their company, talking to them about what they need to do? Well, remember, we're not really coming into them from the outside telling them what to do. We're actually listening to what their team members and they have said first. And then that is what prescribes and also predicts the value of them making that behavioral change. So by looking at the analytics, they're just essentially getting tapped into the common sentiment. So when they know that that is a common sentiment and when we teach them, again, we're Canadian, so we teach them in a nice way. (laughs) When we teach them how to be respected by bringing forward a sentence structure that works, they do open up and the people that receive the feedback actually get trained on how to receive the feedback as well. This is a competence skill that we all need to learn. And it's tough. It's not easy. But with practice, people do it. Practice makes progress, shall we say, right? That's a kind of little buzzword, but it's true. It does. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense to me. One of the articles I was reading when I actually was doing a bit of research, wrote an article called Six Things Needed to Build Successful Cross-Functional Teams. And I think cross-functional teams is maybe almost a bit of a catchphrase these days. But I do think that that's, especially with COVID, especially with work from home, like we were talking about before, there are more interactions happening between different elements of the team, but not in the way they used to with maybe traditional meetings and setups and all this. Maybe talk a little bit about that article that you wrote and maybe a couple of the key things. Yeah, so 12 years ago, when I recognized that learning and development needed to be disrupted, we set aside a good 18 months, actually probably close to 24 months, to research what would the workplace of 2020 look like. 
we knew that team members would be coming in. We didn't expect a pandemic, but we knew that team members would be coming in from multiple locations to come together. So what we did in that process was we went out to the market and we said, what are the key indicators of a highly functioning team? And through that process where we went back and forth, out, 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 maybe three, four times, we took it down from 72 indicators to six key indicators. So those now, when you're speaking about cross-functional teams, it doesn't matter if it's an in-tech team, a cross-functional team, or perhaps an agile team or a matrix layout team. Those behaviors within those six key indicators are what's critical to evidence-based performance. So those are communication. How do we share information, accountability? How do we hold one another accountable? Even if some of us are in the office and some of us are working from home, how do you have that connection to hold people accountable to getting projects done? This whole idea of cohesion, do you know who's on your team? They may be in Switzerland, you may be in Germany, and somebody else may be in India, but do you know where their subject matter experts are and how to lean on them within your team so that you're not duplicating effort? And then structures, if you are in a distributed team or an agile team, and often employees who are in agile teams are on multiple teams at a time. For instance, think about a construction and development company where each person is working on three different developments, let's say. Those are three different projects, but they may not have a lead. They may be on the customer experience team. Their leader may not be in that project with them. So they have to move amongst those teams. So cohesion, really important. How do we know who's on the team? What are they doing? Structures, how do we structure workflows and processes so that we can navigate those nuances? Even right now, bridging full-time employees with gig employees and contract employees like you talked about there, that's critical structures. Emotional intelligence, you also tapped on this a little bit, this whole idea of, hey, some people aren't like you. They don't like working from home all the time and they may be plummeting into some sort of a not good place, not a mentally fit place, but are they aware of that? Are they managing it? Are they being empathetic to themselves? Do they have social skills to reach out to a leader or a coworker and say, hey, I just need to have a connection today. Are they being leader assertive with that within their projects? And I think I missed one. So communication, accountability, feedback, structures, cohesion, and emotional intelligence. Yeah, I guess I did get them all. So really important that we navigate those indicators, both from competence, do I have the skills, will, am I motivated to navigate those, and can I collaborate with others within those? Yeah, that's fantastic. It's a really great summary of the article as well. Looking at what we've been talking about with Vivo Team, if you were to look at kind of, it's maybe a difficult question to answer, but is there one or two common issues that you run into regularly with new clients? when it comes to the work that you do with them? Yeah, I actually, I would say there is something commonly. I think that a lot of our clients have come to this place where they're growing. They're in a situation where their company is growing or recently maybe actually downsizing and they're having to reorganize in order to get the projects done to meet the customer's demand. And what they come to realize is that they actually haven't developed their leaders. They've just hired great people They've articulated top talent and they've promoted top talent and they perhaps have even given top talent titles that actually in acumen don't fit what they're doing, but they wanted to promote them. And in promoting them, 
they've probably come from some hard skills, but they don't have the ability to work with the human being element, which is what we've talked about. So when companies recognize that, they realize, okay, this is actually a competence issue. I have to bring in an organization that's got a high touch feeling, also data to provide insights to make that easy for the leaders and the team members. So I would say to summarize that, the pain point that we're seeing is that people get to that growth stage where they realize that they haven't developed their people to take on the next stage of growth, essentially. Yeah, I think that's unfortunately pretty common. And uh, it's very interesting that you're seeing that on a regular basis. Looking at Vivo Team five years, 10 years from now, what does success mean for you? Yeah, I think if you ask me or if you ask any of the members of Vivo Team, we all share this passion for changing lives for a living. So many of the employees that work with us, the contractors that work with us, have come from some sort of environment that has either been toxic or they haven't been able to bring their innovations forward. And they've gone home at the end of the day very exhausted. And I think there's a lot of people out there in the world that are exhausted. So by providing practical tools and efficiencies where people can engage at a higher level, and as most of our clients say, we have laughter on the Zoom meetings or we have laughter in the hallways. That's what we want to continue doing. And we just want to do it for more people so that we disrupt this whole disengagement crisis, really. Yeah, that's a fantastic thing to look to achieve, to strive for. Last two questions of the interview, I typically go a little bit broader. So for the third to last question, I guess we'll say, what's your pet peeve? What's something that really bugs you when you see it, either professionally or personally? Oh, I think this spans both professional and personal. Lack of curiosity. I'm so fascinated. I don't know where this has come from, but people get into this mindset that they can't ask questions. It's a real conversation deadener because if I'm always the one who's essentially the interviewer because I'm curious about you, Sean, and the other person isn't matching that curiosity, the conversation ends pretty quickly and we start talking about the weather. And I just think we're here on this earth together. We have so few heartbeats. Why not get to know one another and connect at a deeper level? And so I think that my pet peeve is where did we lose our curiosity as human beings? Yeah, I agree. And I think that actually links quite well with how, I don't want to say stubborn because that's maybe got a negative connotation, but set in their ways, people are more now than maybe at any point in the past. So it's interesting. I think intellectual curiosity is definitely needed. Next question for me, if you could pick one thing for the listener or watcher to walk away from this interview with, what piece of information would you want them to have? Yeah, I think the piece of information I would want them to have is essentially do what's going to keep you alive. I mean, I've chosen sort of a solopreneur to entrepreneurial life. It hasn't been easy, but it's kept me alive. And I look at a lot of my peers who have chosen maybe some of those toxic work environments where it's deadened their creativity, their interest to be collaborative, their interest to bring forward great ideas because along the way their spirit has been killed. You know, often I see those people go, oh, I'm going to do my own thing. And I think actually a lot of people are doing this now. I'm going to do my own thing, but they actually don't realize that doing their own thing actually can be something that they're not ready for. My husband and I have this saying, the 18-month entrepreneur, because we see a lot of those people 18 months later, and you look on LinkedIn and boom, they've got a job because they dipped their toe, but they couldn't figure it out. So 
no matter what it is, no judgment, whatever it is for you, if it's changing a role or if it's changing organizations or if it's seeing if you do want to do your own thing, do what's going to keep you alive because life's too short, way too short to not be alive. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. And I think it's good that you put it that way. There's a lot of kind of hype around entrepreneurship and being an entrepreneur. And, you know, a lot of, uh, especially (laughs) younger people, they're like, yeah, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. That's what I'm going to do. And it's like, not everyone is built that way. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with working for a company as long as it's a good company and a good fit for, like you said, what keeps you alive. So I like that. My last question is always a personal interest question for me. I read and collect a lot of books. And so if you were to recommend a book right now, personal or professional, which one would it be? Well, a bit of this comes from my context of being a digital nomad in the Barbados right now, but I would definitely say Don't Stop the Carnival by Herman Wook is a fantastic book. There's a bit of Jimmy Buffett in there, but it's really about a gentleman who buys a hotel on an island and all of the, let's say, entrepreneurial (laughs) strife that he goes through. So I think it's a fun read, really fun read. It'll keep you alive and keep you smiling. That sounds fantastic. Well, Renee, thank you so much for being on the show today. For everyone listening and watching, I'm going to put links down below to Vivo Team and Renee's social media, as well as the article that I spoke about. With that, Renee, I hope you have a great rest of your day. And Sean, you know what? One of the things I'll ask too is one of the links we should put in there is the diagnosis or the assessment. We have a blood pressure reading so people could actually see how their team is doing. We'll give them an instant report. It'll take them about three or four moments to do it. But give it a try. Try it on for size. See what you think and how your team's doing and how alive you're doing as well. That's a great takeaway. I'll definitely put that down there as well. Thanks for that. Perfect. That's great. Thanks so much, Sean. Have a great day. You too, Renee. All right. Thanks for listening to On Air with Sean McStay. If you have any questions for the guests, contact me on social media or reach out on my website, www.onairwithseanmcstay.com. Have a great rest of your day.